Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back, TFR listeners. Today, Brendan Wallace joins us from sunny Southern California. It's a particularly cold and gray day here in Chicago, a great opportunity to give my wife a hard time for convincing me to move out of Santa Barbara seven years ago. Always miss the beach at this time of year. But Brendan is not, and he's here today to discuss real estate tech. In this episode, we cover how building a fund is different from a startup, why Fifth Wall invests in real estate tech, why they take a different approach to working with LPs and portcos, how large corporate LPs get comfortable with threatening technology that can destroy existing asset values. Brendan gives an overview of the real estate tech landscape and how it's segmented why he thinks no other funds are focused on the sector, the common denominator he looks for in startups, the concept of the built world and how tech will bridge the gap between physical and digital, the most disruptive ideas he's come across in real estate, how the hot tech trends like AI, AV, robotics, and ARVR will affect the sector, and finally, what surprised him most since raising Fifth Wall Fund 1. All that and plenty more in today's episode. I think Brendan has one of the most compelling investment theses I've heard, and he has a really insightful way that he de-risks every investment he makes. Here's the interview with Brendan Wallace. Investment banker turned venture investor Brendan Wallace joins us today from LA. Brendan is co-founder and managing partner at Fifth Wall Ventures. Before Fifth Wall, he was co-founder and CEO of Identified, that was acquired by Workday in 2014, and co-founder of Cabify, the largest ride-sharing service in Latin America. Brendan has been an active angel investor and manages one of the largest syndicates on AngelList, having led over 60 investments, including Bonobos, Dollar Shave Club, Ernest, Phil's Coffee, and Zetafits. Prior to his career in tech, Brendan worked at Goldman Sachs and the Blackstone Group, with experience doing large real estate deals and private equity transactions. Brendan, it's a big pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Excited to be on. So you haven't always been a VC, clearly, from the uh, the bio here. So can you talk about what you did before and why you decided to start a fund? Yeah, so my background is probably a little different than a lot of VCs. I'd say my background is kind of a hybridization of both real estate and tech as an entrepreneur, kind of like like the fund in some respects. So I actually started my career right out of college. Um, I worked at Goldman Sachs doing real estate investment banking, and then I worked at Blackstone in real estate private equity. 
And I had the good fortune to kind of have my career right during the bull cycle, 2004 to 2008. So it was a really exciting time to be in the real estate world, be in real estate capital markets, and I learned a lot. But really, that all ended in 2008, and it seemed like a good time to get out of the real estate business. And so I'd applied to business school, ended up going to Stanford. And while at Stanford, I just caught the tech bug. Um, you're surrounded by entrepreneurs, you're surrounded by this venture ecosystem, and it was, it was just a really exciting place to be. And in the early days of Facebook platform, me and another classmate built a company called Identified. Uh, we raised capital right away from actually our professors at Stanford, grew that business, raised $35 million as we graduated, uh, and then Workday, big public enterprise SaaS company, acquired us in 2014. So kind of had a really exciting run as, as an entrepreneur, really an about face from my earlier career in, in real estate. And I'd also started another company called Cabify, which is today the largest ride sharing service in, in Latin America. It's kind of like a Uber of Latin America. So um, through those experiences, I kind of had this unique vantage point of having had a foot in the real estate industry and a foot in the, the tech community and the tech world. And I think Fifth Wall was kind of just an organic creation of that. Um, I think part of it also came, Nick, from my experience as an angel investor. Um, I had actively invested in a number of companies during that time. I was very active on AngelList. I think I've done about 30 companies on AngelList, um, invested in probably 60 companies total, including like Dollar Shave Club and Bonobos um, and Open Door and a number of businesses. And so through that, I think I saw this opportunity where there really wasn't a venture capital fund focused on a massive category of the U.S. economy, which is real estate and real estate capital markets. And I think that was the genesis for, for Fifth Wall. Awesome. Can, can you talk a little bit more about the two startups that you founded and sort of the build process for those startups versus you know creating a fund and being an entrepreneur on the investment side? Yeah. So there's, you know, there's quite a lot of differences, obviously, between building a, a venture capital fund and building a company. But I would actually argue there's more similarities than differences. Um, you know, one of the things you learn as an entrepreneur, certainly as a young first-time entrepreneur, as I did, is the importance of team and hiring the right people around you. I was fortunate to have, I think I've been fortunate three times as an entrepreneur now to have exceptional co-founders. And I think that's a critical element in building any new venture. I think also hiring the right employees and, and the right teammates early on is also really, really critical, obviously, in a startup. And I think I learned that. I made some mistakes as an entrepreneur, but I, I learned that on the ground um, in my first couple companies. And in VC, you know, you're, you don't really have a lot of true IP as a, as a fund versus a, a technology business. And so it's even more critical that you both hire the right people, but also build the right culture and the right systems and the right operational model. And having seen now a lot of venture capitalists, a lot of venture capitalists, I actually think, don't have that background and don't have that emphasis on like, how do you really staff an exceptional team to execute your vision as a fund? And it's much more about individual contributors, kind of these cults of personalities um, at, at the general partner level. And so I think what I brought to venture capital based on my experience as an entrepreneur is building a, a, an approach to how do you develop talent, investment talent, 
and support talent for the portfolio companies in a highly operationalized way. Um, and that was something that Brad and I have been very thoughtful about from the very beginning. And I think it really came from my experience as an entrepreneur. Is the focus more on the development side as opposed to selection? Or do you feel like you have sort of equal emphasis on those people that you choose to uh, bring on to the team um, as the efforts that you put in after they join? You know, it's a good it's a good question. And I think we try to strike a balance. You always want to have, you, you got to have a baseline level of competency. Um, and I think obviously having the ambition to do what we do. But I think it is important to be able to show to show someone that you can develop very, very quickly. I think what we've been fortunate here at Fifth Wall is we've hired investment professionals that are probably on slightly on the younger side of where a lot of funds would hire. And we have a very different investment model and investment mandate than most venture funds. So it's actually not something that you could take from a generalist fund, a typical big Silicon Valley generalist fund. And what I mean by that is we have this collaborative approach where we collaborate with these large corporate anchor LPs, structure port partnerships with our portfolio companies that can rapidly accelerate their growth. And then we invest in those companies, sometimes in a pretty structured way. So you can kind of think about our approach as kind of kingmaking in some sense. And there's a lot of interested parties, a lot of, uh, a lot of kind of consultative work that goes into that, both with the portfolio companies and with our strategic LPs. That's a quite different uh, set of activities as it relates to investing than a generalist VC does, which is kind of much more ground up. You're kind of looking closely at the company, looking at the technology and speculating on what is going to happen in the market as opposed to making a reality or making an outcome in the market. So as a result, I think we've had more success training younger, really strong investment talent in our model. And I actually think we'd have less success hiring in frankly, really talented generalist VCs that have been successful in kind of this more kind of bottom-up, more speculative way of investing in our mandate and our model. So we actually, I think, emphasize development more as a fund. Interesting. So a little abstract. Tell us more about this Kingmaker sort of methodology and, you know, what does Fifth Wall do? What's the investment focus? How does that work? So, I mean, just like by background, I would say, we're a venture capital fund that's focused on built world technology. Um, our, our fund is 212 million, and about half of that 212 million is strategic real estate capital. So we raised half the capital from the largest owners and operators of real estate in the U.S. and globally. Got it. So one of the reasons I think we saw this opportunity, and it might be helpful just to walk through this, is. You know, real estate tech is obviously a massive opportunity within venture, simply because real estate is the largest industry in the U.S. It's 14% of U.S. GDP. It's the largest asset class. It's the largest lending category. And I think everyone knows it's one of the least technologized. So as an industry, it spends very little as a percentage of industry revenue on IT. And just impressionistically, you walk into a building or you walk into a house and there's not a lot of technology, right? It's a kind of largely under-technologized space. So when you look at that, we saw a huge opportunity. I mean, clearly you can see the, the kind of tides changing um, and large real estate companies are hiring CIOs, they're investing in technology, and they increasingly see technology 
as a core part of what they do to improve the tenant experience, to improve operations, to drive energy efficiency. So a lot of kind of macro tailwinds behind, behind this investment category. What's really hard about real estate tech as an investment category is that because there hasn't been much innovation in real estate, um, what constitutes true innovation is oftentimes very lightweight and very simple. So what I mean by that is things that are just not innovative in, say, corporate enterprise software are extremely innovative in real estate technology. And the reason for that is the baseline is zero. The baseline is almost no technology or very little technology or some internally developed bespoke technology. Hmm. So as a result, real estate tech doesn't have the, what I would call the existential risks that you face in a lot of venture investing. The kind of, does it work? Is it better than the status quo? Does it have positive ROI? Most ideas, Nick, in, in real estate tech are good ideas. But where all the risk hinges is around distribution and go-to-market. So if you have corporate you know, brokerage technology focused on the real estate industry and you don't sell to CBRE or Cushman, you don't have brokerage technology, right? Everything depends on getting a distribution deal with a small set of major institutional real estate owners and operators. Success or failure is distribution-driven versus technology-driven. That's a weird characteristic of, of this whole uh, real estate venture economy that, that we saw. And so the approach that Fifth Wall took is we said, well, what if we could raise half the capital in our fund from the largest owners of real estate technology, largest operators, the, the, the organizations that when they adopt a technology are defining the next generation of winners um, and who increasingly recognize this and want to have a hand in shaping the outcomes in the venture economy. So that was really the rationale for half of our capital coming from these large corporates. So what we did, um, this was in early 2016, we systematically broke the real estate universe up into kind of its major food groups. And we tried to raise capital from one of the largest U.S. corporates in retail and industrial and hospitality and multifamily. And so our LPs are CBRE, which is the largest commercial brokerage, Prologis, the largest industrial real estate owner, Lennar, the largest home builder, Equity Residential, the largest multifamily owner, Host Hotels, the largest hotel owner, Heinz, one of the largest office developers, Mace Rich, third largest mall owner, and Lowe's Home Improvement. And so I know there's a long windup to kind of your, your question, but to put a fine point on what we do, we collaborate very closely with our LPs and we identify situations where they're looking for a technology solution to a particular need or pain point they have. We look at all the solutions that are in market. We kind of pair that large corporate with the company we want to be the winning technology and then we invest in it. So as a result, there's a lot of parties involved there and it's a, it's a more dynamic, it's a more complicated process than a typical venture deal. Um, but as a result, I think we've we've been able to de-risk our portfolio companies to a great extent. So I worked for a large organization previously, and part of the challenge we had or I had within that organization is that technology could be seen as a threat or an opportunity. And most often with large asset holders, uh, it's seen as a threat. So how do you how do you manage and mitigate that with with the LP set? So it's a great point, and I think, 
everyone knows the the stories of corporates who have been slow to recognize disruptive competitive threats, um, the blockbusters of the world, and they've been deniers, you know, sometimes all the way until their death and demise. I think the what happened with Airbnb in the hospitality industry is a lesson or has been a lesson for a lot of real estate owners. Obviously, the hospitality industry denied that Airbnb was a competitive threat, claimed that it was a different market, a different use case, a different product than what they were offering in the hospitality industry. Everyone now knows that's wrong. Um, it is disruptive. It is competitive. And it has had a negative impact on hotels. The rest of the real estate world looked at that and they said, I don't want that to happen to me. And so as they look at other trends, highly disruptive trends that are happening in on-demand self-storage, uh, co-living, co-working, what, what, the growth of WeWork as a category, changes in real estate capital markets. And the view our corporates take, I think, is twofold. One, it's offensive. It's how do I obviously find technology that helps me do what I already do better, cut costs out of my OPEX, drive more revenue. But another part of it is defensive and in some ways almost informational. And it's how do I stay close to the technologies that are radically changing my industry? How do I get involved in them, build influence with them while the clay is still wet? And I don't think that stops you from getting disrupted, but I think it can help inform changes you need to make in your business. And I think I have a good example there. So we put together a partnership between Lennar, which is the largest home builder in the U.S., and frankly, a a pretty complicated residential organization. They have a mortgage arm, they have a title insurance arm, they have a financing arm. And we paired them with Opendoor. And I don't know if you're familiar with Opendoor, but sure. Opendoor is a, it's a now a billion dollar company. It's a unicorn. They programmatically acquire single family homes. So they have automatic valuation models that can price single family homes in certain zip codes, acquire them, and they resell them. And really what both organizations have aligning them is that they have a shared vision of increasing transparency and increasing liquidity in the U.S. residential housing market. They want to make it easier and more accessible and more affordable and less painful for a U.S. consumer to buy a home. Um, the opposite of that would be, say, a broker right? that is doing the opposite. Yep. But both shared that vision. And we were able to bring them together and structure a pretty broad multifaceted partnership where Lennar was looking to distribute, obviously, its financial products and open door controlling so many home sales was a, an avenue to do that. I think the other thing that open door saw and Lennar saw is that open door is transformational. It's, I'd argue, one of the most interesting companies in the, the tech world, irrespective of real estate tech. Um, and Lennar was like, we think this is going to have a fundamental change in how consumers buy and sell homes. We think this platform, this programmatic buying and selling, this kind of tool that adds liquidity to an otherwise illiquid market is incredibly transformative in a success state. So we as an organization, it's not so much that we don't want to be disrupted, but it's more that we want to have a hand in shaping that. And we want to have influence with that management team. And we want to be able to support them and have a positive relationship. And we actually see that quite a bit in our LPs. You're right that it is always hard to drive change management in large organizations, but I think that is changing. And we were thoughtful in who we selected into our LP base um, in trying to identify anchor LPs that actually had that grand vision. 
was just talking with Eric Reese about this, so it's it's great to get your take on a, on a very similar concept. But Brendan, could we take a step back for a second, and could you kind of paint the picture or an overview of the real estate tech market at large? You know, what are the major categories? How do you think about segmentations within this this sector that you're focused on? Yeah, so I mean, real estate tech is obviously massive. Um, I guess just some stats behind it. You know, four billion dollars of venture capital went into real estate tech alone. Uh, another billion to two billion went into retail tech. Another one to two billion went into hospitality tech. And I don't think we have good stats on construction tech yet, uh, infrastructure tech. But it's a lot. It's a big, big category. So maybe I'll answer that as it relates to our funds purview, like where we actually focus our investments. And I think where we focus is threefold. They fall into three big buckets. The first is kind of true B2B or B2B enterprise and consumer software. So software that makes it easier for consumers to identify apartments to get or easier for landlords to interact with brokers to structure leases on the commercial side. So it's really just software layer that makes the activities within the real estate economy better, faster, more reliable, more transparent, like true software. Got it. The other big bucket that I think we look at are what I would call asset light or tech-enabled real estate concepts. So these are concepts that kind of blend what a real estate company is and what a tech company is. And I'll give some examples. I think WeWork is kind of an example of that. They are now a massive landlord, and yet they don't own a single asset. And they have technology layers that support their engagement with tenants. Other categories that are increasingly important there are co-living. Uh, co-living is growing dramatically, and it has a lot of the same characteristics as co-working. Yep. Uh, on-demand self-storage. So we invested, we're big investors in a company called Clutter, which is the largest national on-demand self-storage company. And what they do is they literally show up at your house, pick up the stuff that you would otherwise store at a self-storage facility, and they pack it into a warehouse that's usually far outside the city. And they have massive economies of scale in terms of the cost of what it costs to rent that particular warehouse, the distribution to customers. And frankly, it's just a more convenient product than using traditional self-storage. But when you look at that business, it's kind of like, is that a real estate company or is that a tech company? And the truth is, it's it's somewhere in between. And we like companies like that. So that's category two of kind of asset light real estate companies, tech enabled real estate companies. I think the last big category that our, our first fund is focused on is real estate related fintech. So real estate capital markets, both commercial and residential, are the largest capital markets on earth. Um, they're larger than the U.S. stock market. It's larger than the U.S. debt market. And it's dramatically less transparent, <laughs> less liquid, less data rich. So improving how assets are bought, sold, financed is critically important and represents a huge opportunity because the flows of capital are so large. So that's really kind of where we focus as a fund. I, I would add there are some other big buckets that we haven't really yet focused on, but I think will over time become quite large. One is obviously energy efficiency. So, you know, when people talk about energy efficiency and, you know, green tech, real estate is 30% of the U.S. energy industry and 60% of the U.S. electricity industry. So it is the spot to look to drive a lot of the savings and efficiencies that technologies can render. Hmm. 
Um, so it really is a real estate tech business, even though it might not call itself one. Uh, that is a space we have made some investments in, but we're obviously incredibly excited by. And another interesting one, I think, is going to be smart buildings. Um, if you really were to think of or conceptualize real estate as being hardware, right? It's the actual hardware where some human commercial or, or uh, social activity takes place. It's pretty dumb hardware, right? It's unconnected. Um, and yet, at the small scale, our phones, obviously, our computers, our tablets have high levels of connectivity. And so a lot of the solutions today are trying to pair the two. How do we leverage our phone to open a door? Um, but in some ways, that's really a patch. And the really exciting opportunity is how do you turn everything that moves in a building, literally everything, every hinge, every doorknob, every turnstile, into something that's smart, something that's connected? And therefore, we're not just relying on our phone. Uh, we're not just relying on our computers. We're not relying on a central operating system. But how do you truly connect all the pieces of a building? That opportunity hasn't even really started yet or in such early days. But just to put that in context, that is probably not a multi-billion dollar opportunity. That's probably a multi-trillion dollar opportunity over decades. Sure. Every single building around us needs to be retrofitted and will be retrofitted to become smart. So those are kind of, I would say, the, some of the big buckets to paint a picture of, of real estate tech as a whole. Well, I'm an IoT guy, so you're speaking my language there. But um, clearly, the opportunity size is massive. I mean, you've laid out the numbers. And we've seen a lot of industry-focused or sector-focused funds out there, but not really in real estate. So, you know, with all this low-hanging fruit, with lots of great ideas for technology to, to apply to this sector, um, why do you think there's no other VC funds focused on it? I think there's two reasons. Um, it's a great question, and it's one we wondered about when we were starting this fund. We are like, are we missing something? Um, <laughs> why, are, why are there more focused venture capital funds on, say, education tech, right, which has produced a fraction, a small fraction of the value of real estate technology? There's, frankly, more funds focused on cannabis technology than there are real estate technology right now. Yeah. So we were like, why is that? And I think there's two reasons. One is sociological. There are just not a lot of people in the venture capital world that came from the real estate industry. I don't know why that is, but it's just the case. Uh, we have yet to meet a, a general partner at a, at a generalist VC fund who has had meaningful professional experience working in the real estate industry. So part of it is just there's not a lot of relationships. There's not a lot of industry experience and you know acumen around real estate investing and real estate relationships in the venture world. The second, I think, actually comes down to our model, which is it's very hard to invest in real estate tech unless you can de-risk distribution. It really is a category of venture that is really wholly and almost solely dependent on distribution deals with big institutional players. So how do you de-risk that if you're a generalist fund and you don't have those relationships? So in some ways, the way Fifth Wall approached this by bringing in large corporates, by bringing in the biggest buyers of real estate tech to our fund, was a, like an existential solution to how you could realistically invest in this massive category. But I think those are the main reasons. And so so much of our work is obviously building deep, dynamic, intimate kind of 
very high touch relationships with our corporate anchor LPs and then iterating on that and adding more um, and making sure that we can take a young, fast growing technology company and with great technology, distribute it massively throughout the real estate ecosystem. Amazing. Have you uh, by chance heard about Mark Andreessen's sort of bantering with his father-in-law? I think his his father-in-law is a real estate guy. And of course, Mark clearly is a tech guy. And I guess they have kind of an ongoing debate about whose industry is <laughs> is a better one to be in. I mean, the, the truth is, I, I so one, I don't know about that debate. It's, uh, it's certainly a fascinating one. I'd, I'd give an interesting example, maybe just to, to add to that dialogue. If you look at Airbnb, um, which is clearly an incredibly disruptive hospitality slash real estate concept that has emerged recently, it's generating in the billions of revenue by charging 7% commissions. Let's just say it's two, $3 billion of revenue that Airbnb is generating. That probably means it's generating net new real estate income by between 40, 50, $60 billion to homeowners, apartment owners, landlords all throughout the US. Crazy. If you were to, if you were to put a cap rate on that, which is how you value real estate, that probably translates to somewhere between 700 million to a trillion dollars of real estate value. So contrast that, right? You have Airbnb, massive, incredibly successful operating business that is a $30 billion business that has created unto itself close to a trillion dollars of real estate value. That's obviously fascinating. And I think where some of the big opportunities in our space are, are where the line between a real estate tech company, real estate company and a tech company blend and merge because there's there's just so much hard asset capital that can complement some of these strategies. You know, WeWork just launched a real estate fund alongside WeWork. I would expect many of the co-living companies to do the same. Um, we facilitated a major credit investment from Lennar in Opendoor. So it's kind of broader than just the operating companies. There's real hard asset, true real estate opportunities that are starting to become complementary to the disruption that's happening in the real estate venture capital world. So Brendan, is there, I mean, as you're looking at your portfolio and, and maybe even prospective portfolio companies, uh, you know, is there a common denominator across these companies that you're looking for? I mean, we look for situations where we have a unique ability to de-risk the outcome. Um, that is really the one common denominator we're focused on as a fund. We kind of did all this work to bring in large real estate corporates into a venture fund, which was kind of a new approach, a new model to, to doing venture, so to speak. And we look for situations that kind of conform to three criteria for us, which is one, situations where we have asymmetric information. We know about a partnership decision or an adoption decision or a distribution deal before anyone else does. You know, our, our corporate LP is telling us we're going to spend 10, 20 million dollars on this particular product over the next three years. So we kind of look for an informational edge, or at least we can influence that. Number two is we, we don't really try to participate in competitive rounds. Um, so a lot of venture funds are kind of in the market waiting for companies to raise their hands and say, I'm raising a series A or a series B and it ends up being high price wins or maybe high price wins unless you're Sequoia or Benchmark. Um, we don't participate 
typically in competitive rounds. We kind of take a top-down approach where we look at many companies in a space. Most of them obviously are interested, given our partners and finding a way to work with us. We select one that we want to kind of make the winner, and then we programmatically invest in it. So I would call us a kind of off-financing cycle investor. We don't really wait for financing cycles. Hmm. And the last criteria is we try to create very aligning structures. So sometimes we'll tie performance, how, how much value we deliver to our portfolio companies, to how much capital we can put in. Um, and that tends to create a lot of alignment, obviously, for the entrepreneur, that we're actually going to deliver value, and it creates upside for us. So the situations we're looking for conform really to all three of those. Um, and it's really important to kind of invest on mandate to us. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. What's the, the common entry point? Are you guys entering at sort of a seed stage or a series A stage? I know you said you fund off cycle, but you know, is there sort of a valuation range? I'd say we kind of invest in the series A to series B, uh, sorry, series A to series C range, probably with the most deals happening at the series B stage. Part of that is that I think seed is too early. You know, there's not enough product market fit. There's not enough scale, not, not enough proof points to truly make a big bet for us. Um, too late, right? It's, it's very likely that the value we can deliver is the company already has. So we, we just can't add enough value. So it's really companies that are you know, at the Series A stage, have some proof point customers, are starting to scale, but want to take their product and get it in front of many different real estate owners really fast. And that's where we step in. Um, and we will, one, invest and two, we'll open up our universe of real estate partners to them and try to scale them. So that's our sweet spot. Typically, that means we're investing anywhere from $5 million to $15 million per deal. Got it. Got it. And you had mentioned earlier in the conversation this uh, concept of the built world all around us. Um, can you talk more about this concept, You know, where real estate and tech are meeting, and maybe some of the disruptive ideas you're seeing in built world technology? Yeah, I mean, we, we developed the concept of built world to be a little more broad than real estate tech because where we focus as a fund is as a fund is where technology is touching the physical environment, the physical world we live in. Um, a lot of that is real estate tech. A lot of that is you know hardware 
and energy efficiency. Um, and it, it touches on big themes that a lot of people are talking about. So I'll just give one example that I think might be relevant. You know, when you think about autonomous cars, there's a lot of talk and a lot of hype about how autonomous cars are going to change the automotive industry, which is in itself a very interesting question. But the U.S. It, the U.S. real estate industry is defined by the automobile, right? And is certainly defined by the fact that the average American spends about 40 minutes a day in a car driving to and from work or driving to shop or driving, driving to do things. So it defines where bedroom communities are, where, where offices are, where industrial parks are, <laughs> where airports are. Our entire built environment is conditioned on the fact that we drive. Sure. So in some ways, the changes that autonomous cars will bring to the automotive industry is an interesting question, but they pale in comparison to the changes that the autonomous car will bring to the real estate world. When, when the first automobiles were mass commercialized in the early part of the last century, it more radically changed the real estate world than it did the automotive world. And, and the, the value created and destroyed in that world was a multiple of what happened in the automotive industry. So what's so fascinating, and I kind of use that example to highlight that the built world is just such an, an important, omnipresent part of our lives. And we oftentimes think about technological changes as happening in a device or you know, in, a, in a computer or in a particular context, like an autonomous car. But it's the first derivative knock-on effects of how that changes the physical world around us that are oftentimes more profound, right? The iPhone wasn't, the, the killer app of the iPhone wasn't that you can watch movies on your iPhone. It was the killer app was logistics, that you could request a car to come to you on demand and take you to wherever you're going. It was a, a value add, a utility that was happening in the real world, in the built world, not in the digital world that was so profound about it. And so as we think about the built world and these big technological paradigm shifts like virtual reality and autonomous cars and augmented reality, I think it's really interesting to think about how does this change the physical world around us? And that's really been our focus as a fund. It's a little scary to think about the potential value disruption here as well. You know, the, the bedroom communities that could go away, you know, overnight after, uh, uh, autonomous driving and who knows, autonomous flight eventually comes in. And and to think about what the use case uh, or what the form factors of cars, how they change when you don't have to sit, you know, facing forward with your hands at 10 and 2. And what you could actually do in a mobile environment that we never used to think you could. So, you know, could you sleep in your car? Could you work in your car? Could you ride a stationary bike in your car? Could you eat a meal in your car at a table, not facing forward? Um, so I think what's fascinating about autonomous cars also is a lot of the activities, the basic human activities that we typically associate with taking place in a stationary environment could very well take place in a mobile environment. And as that changes, then tons of things start to get transformed in the world around us, right? Uh, yeah. The use cases of retail real estate might radically and forever shift. So, um, yeah, those are ideas I think that interest us and we want to stay abreast of because every single technological change that happens in a device or in the digital world has a usually a more profound and far larger effect on the physical world around us. It's amazing. Can you 
talk about some of the investments in the fifth wall portfolio that, that you're excited about? Yeah. So, um, we've made a number of investments. I probably can't talk through all of them. We've made about 14 investments so far uh, in the first year and a half of operations. So we are investors in Opendoor, which I referenced earlier. It's kind of a liquidity platform for residential real estate. Um, we're incredibly excited by a company called VTS, which is leasing and asset management software for the commercial real estate industry. Um, this is an industry that literally does not have true enterprise software. It doesn't have the oracles and SAPs and sales forces within it. And so all of that enterprise software stack is getting built de novo right now and adopted de novo right now within these large organizations. And VTS is kind of clearly the front runner as kind of the true enterprise software stack that supports the commercial real estate industry. Um, we've invested in uh, in digital mortgage lender called Ethos, which is really exciting and building uh, it's a cheap direct-to-consumer alternative to traditional mortgage finance. Uh, we've invested in a title insurance company called States Title that has built a cheaper, just more efficient alternative to title insurance, which is kind of this archaic uh, offline industry. Uh, we invested in Clutter, which is a on-demand self-storage company. Um, they're the largest kind of nationwide, and what they do is pick up your stuff and, and, and store it remotely. Uh, we've invested in Convene, which is kind of like a hospitality concept that supports tenants within a building. So it kind of renders a building. It gives a building we work like amenities to its existing tenants, flexible workspace, flexible event space, and just a level of amenitization that you couldn't replicate in your own office and drives more retention and stickiness for tenants of that building. Um, that's a decent cross-section of, I think, the companies that we're investing in. Super interesting. So, you know, what, what didn't we cover uh, related to real estate tech and or, you know, what, what surprised you since, since starting the fund? You know, I think one of the things that surprised me, and I, we kind of talked about this earlier, is that building a venture capital fund, um, when Brad and I built this, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't all that different than building a, a, a operating business. And I think that's actually a really original approach to building a venture fund. And I had the benefit of building it, obviously, very early in my career and with experience as an entrepreneur. But one of the key things we focused on was, just as you would any business you're building, how do you build something unique and defensible? The business of investing is hard because you're selling something that's inherently commoditized. You're selling capital. Um, and I think increasingly that is a struggle for generalist funds is they're all competing because they're selling the same thing. Um, and, and they clearly add value to their portfolio companies, but that value is not so differentiated. And so what we've really focused on is where is our value differentiated? How do we carve out our space of the venture ecosystem? And how do we deliver outsized, exceptional, defensible value to our portfolio companies? Um, and I think that's just a lesson, right, of, of being an entrepreneur, which is like, how do you constantly try to drive more and more defensibility, more barriers to entry to support your, your core thesis? That's been something I, that was surprising to me, how, how little that's focused on in the venture world. So, Brendan, uh, if we could cover any topic here on the program or have any guests, what topic do you think should be addressed and who would you like to hear speak about it? So I would strongly encourage you to chat with Eric Wu at, at Opendoor. Um, 
I, I just truly think it's one of the most transformative companies in all of tech, solving a, a problem and an and area in, in the investment world that is just so grand. Um, the, the reason I say that is nothing changes consumers' financial lives more than making it easier and more transparent to buy a home. Buying a home is the single biggest financial decision anyone makes in their lives. It's the largest store of consumer wealth. And it is, to anyone who's ever bought a home, it is incredibly painful and inefficient and archaic. And Open Door's philosophy and how they're approaching it is, I just think, beyond fascinating. And it's fascinating in its own right, but it's fascinating in terms of like the implications for what that can do to U.S. consumer behavior and the U.S. economy, because those changes are just so profound in how they can impact people's lives. Um, so I would, I would encourage you to chat with them. I think it'd be a great conversation for your podcast. Love it. Even on the sell side, it's tough. You know, I, I went through the, the painful process of buying a home and then I went through the painful process of, of selling a home. And fortunately I ended up getting what I wanted for it, but had to sit on it for quite a few months to, to reach that point. And I think you're exactly right. And that's actually where Open Door started is they started by making it really easy to sell your home. Um, that was the, the go to market was you can get at kind of like the way you sell a car on CarMax, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you don't have to haggle. You go in, get rid of your car, get a fair price. You walk out and you trust that they're not ripping you off. That is very powerful. Nothing like that exists in residential real estate. There's no one you can turn to where you can trust that you're getting a fair deal fast on your home. And if you did, how would that change consumer behavior around home buying and this huge purchase they're making with their lives and their financial future and their families? It's, it's just a, it's a really profound, I think, interesting question. Love the fifth wall focus. This uh, one example of many of uh, the opportunity size in your segment. But um, Brendan, what, what investor has influenced you most and why? It's a good question. Um, I'd say Antonio Gracias, who is the founder of a fund called Valor. Um, they're a pretty um, broad fund in their mandate. They invest in venture. They invest in operating companies. But the thing I learned from Antonio um, and, and Juan Sabater, who's there as well, is they built such a differentiated model. Um, their model is different than ours. They're focused on going really deep into companies and helping them improve operational efficiency and improve their teams. And they literally send people out to factories to help support their portfolios, uh, their portfolio companies. And that model and that differentiation, it resonates so much with entrepreneurs. And when I looked at that, I think we borrowed a lot of that positioning in a different way for Fifth Wall. And we saw it to say, well, how can we build a differentiated advantage that entrepreneurs want as well? Um, and we did it with, with more of a vertical focus, uh, focused on real estate. But he's an exceptional entrepreneur. Their investments, they're in SpaceX, they're in Tesla. They were deeply involved in the turnaround in Tesla in the very early days. They are just an exceptional, exceptional fund. And then finally, uh, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you? Best way to connect with me is to send me an email. Um, my email is brendan, uh, B-R-E-N-D-A-N, at fifthwall.vc. Um, and obviously, just you know, make it clear what, what the company is. And important also, make it clear how we could be strategic. We don't speculate. We don't just invest in anything real estate tech. 
We only invest in companies where we see a unique ability to influence the outcome. So I would encourage entrepreneurs to just you know, make that clear in, in the outreach. Well, Brendan, thanks so much for spending the time with us today. I, uh, I appreciate your patience with the, uh, the tech issues on the phone call here. It's confounding how we, uh, this uh, Skype technology thing still, still fails us at times. But I uh, appreciate the patience, <laughs> and uh, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts today. Of course, yeah. Thanks, right. Nick. Take care. Bye. All right, that'll wrap up today's interview. If you enjoyed the episode or a previous one, let the guest know about it. Share your thoughts on social or shoot them an email. Let them know what particularly resonated with you. I can't tell you how much I appreciate that some of the smartest folks in venture are willing to take the time and share their insights with us. If you feel the same, a compliment goes a long way. Okay, that's a wrap for today. Until next time, remember to over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks so much for listening.